Shalom, everybody. Um, I, I, uh, I see some Chashavah Rabbanim in the crowd. We always have some Chashavah Rabbanim in the crowd, but welcome to Rav Daniel, and nice to, nice to have you here. Um, I want to say just a few words about this week's Torah reading, Parshat Mishpatim. I want to say a few words really about the word Mishpatim. Mishpatim, which there we translate as laws. Often we translate Mishpat as justice, and it's an important word in our Torah, in our tradition. I, I have come to feel that it is one of the two core values of our Torah. That's a big claim. But I have, I have this feeling that mishpat, justice, and, and, and kedushah, holiness, are the values that are being kind of negotiated in this system. And, um, and, and we do translate mishpat as justice, but it's not justice the way we often use the term to mean that which is 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 right is good um that that we maybe tzedek uh, the word tzedek is closer to that um that kind of justice although that's still not, it's uh, we'll think about that word another time but the word mishpat is is a little different it it is it is referring to all of these laws and it's, there's something legal about it. In fact, it's worded, relate, related very clearly to the word for judgment or judging. The first time that it's used, um, Abraham says to God, Hashofet kalaaretz lo yaseh mishpat. Will not the judge of the whole world do mishpat, do judgment then? And then, okay, so you come back to its usage in, in this week's reading, its laws, so its judgments. It's like it's the legal system, something kind of the formal system, that kind of justice, the justice system. But it's not quite that either because, again, it's a principle. And Abraham asked God to do mishpat. So what is mishpat? So first, one little clue. And then mostly, I just want to quote this incredible, um, this incredible rabbi um, and, and from this inc incredible book of his. Um, that's the main thing. But one clue is that we, we, we speak about mishpat also um, when we talk about the priestly breastplate, we call it the choshen mishpat, the breastplate of justice sometimes we translate it. And there are kind of reasons why you might think the priest was associated with justice, but it doesn't really make sense the priest is associated with holiness more. And maybe the best translation of that is that it's the breastplate which is laid out in an order because it has these 12 stones on it. So it's the laid out breastplate, the ordered breastplate. Okay, with that in mind, that's the clue. What I really want to do is, is to tell you that the best explanation of mishpat that I've ever heard came from um, an incredible rabbi from the 20th century who is sometimes overlooked, Rabbi Eliezer Berkowitz, um, who is, you know, I hear some ahs, you know, I may even yavin, if you know, you know, but sometimes you're Rabbi Soloveitchik and you're Rabbi um, Yeshayo Leibovitz and you're Rabbi Heschel will overshadow the name of Rabbi Eliezer Berkowitz, and I don't know why that is, but maybe just because he lived in Chicago, but um, and it's just they don't get the glory. And on that note, I have to say, and now I'm really just rambling, but I ordered this incredible book called Man and God. I said 20th century, probably 21st. It would be Humanity and God, but Man and God, it's an incredible book that takes words one at a time. Man and God studies in biblical theology, takes words one at a time and analyzes how they appear throughout our Tanakh. And he's written a lot of incredible books, not in heaven. Some of them have been reprinted, but this one was hard to find. And I found it on eBay, and I ordered it, and it came 
And in, in, I, I just saw when I got it, in it, it, is, uh, it says Arnold Jacob Wolf, Chicago 1982. Some of you know that Arnold Jacob Wolf was this um, incredible civil rights activist, great reform rabbi in Chicago in the 20th century. So it's like, talk about mishpat. So I have his book. <laughs> I got it on eBay. Um, okay, so back to, the, back to Rabbi Eliezer Berkowitz. I know I'm going on long, but I mostly just want to read this, and then I'll, and I'll wrap up. So Eliezer Berkowitz quotes, this is the thing. Okay, remember, mishpat could mean some kind of orderly layout. Keep that in mind. Eliezer Berkowitz starts by quoting Jeremiah and says, Jeremiah's the clue. And here's the verse from Jeremiah. Gam chasidah Yea, the stork in heaven knoweth her appointed times. And the turtle and the swallow and the crane observe the time of their coming. Va'ami lo yadu et mishpat Adonai. But my people do not know the mishpat of the Lord. Now, that doesn't make sense exactly. There's like, the storks know how to fly around. They, they know when it's winter and summer. They know how to go and all the birds are in their flocks. And they, and they know what to do, but we don't know mishpat. We don't know justice. Okay, so here's Eliezer Berkowitz. Here's the, the, big, the, big, the big point of it all. If we understand mishpat to mean ordinance, law, commandment, the comparison between Israel and the seasonal birds who follow, follow their instincts is difficult to interpret. If, however, the mishpat of the Lord is, listen, a cosmic principle of measured, balanced relatedness, which applies to the whole of life, to the realm of the spirit, no less than to the realm of nature. Then the meaning of these words of Jeremiah becomes clear. The seasonal birds know their appointed times. They sense the orderliness and interrelatedness in nature. Thus they know when to come and when to go. But Israel does not acknowledge the same mishpat, as it prevails in the spiritual life of the world. How shall we formulate this cosmic principle of mishpat? This cosmic principle of mishpat, when projected onto the scene in which human beings find themselves in contact with each other. Is it not also a weighing and a measuring of claims, drives, and desires, of balancing and harmonizing of the whole with a view to its preservation and its God-intended functioning? Justice and law are like God's mishpat in the act of creation, an appropriateness determined not by abstract considerations, but by the reality of man's condition and subserving the meaningful preservation of human life. Amen. <laughs> um, well, that idea, I just want to offer that idea for your consideration. Just take that with you and, and reflect on that tonight. Mishpat, the, these um, this word, this principle, this justice, one of our principles of justice is a cosmic principle of measured, balanced relatedness which applies to the whole of life. And so think about that when we do our justice work, trying to weigh and measure the, the drives and desires and claims of everybody, we are trying to find a kind of harmony in the world. Yes, trying to do the right thing, but trying to find a kind of balance and a kind of equilibrium in the world and a kind of interrelatedness, connectedness of all things. We do that with our justice work. And certainly the implication is, after all, mishpat are all the laws, and that's what we learned this week, is all the mishpatim, the laws, all of the mitzvot, all of these laws are attempts to find that cosmic principle 
of equilibrium and interrelatedness. And certainly we do that when we pray. Certainly we do that when we observe Shabbat and the holidays. The stork knows her moadeha, and, and, and we know our moadim, our appointed times. So as we begin this prayer tonight, this final prayer tonight, the evening prayer tonight, we're like, we're like a flock of birds. No, we're all, that's the idea. When we observe the mitzvot together, when we observe the holidays together, when we observe this tradition together, we're in harmony with one another. We're in sync. We're searching together for that cosmic principle of orderliness. And that's a beautiful thing. And we do that when we daven, and we do that especially when we daven to music, because music is another one of those searches for the cosmic principle of interrelatedness. So as we follow, the, there's always a bird in the front of the flock, as, the, as we follow the bird as, as, as he flies, and we all fly together, let's feel ourselves in harmony. Let's feel ourselves in sync, in mishpat, to know again mishpat Hashem, the mishpat of the eternal, okay? So we're going we're gonna to give that a shot. Um, and thank you for indulging me. I really love this, this, uh, this author. Once again, uh, Eliezer Berkowitz, Man and God, worth, uh, worth a, a, a search on eBay. Um, we are on page, and we'll all rise and, and try to get in, into Mishpat, into Sync Together on page 14. Ikar is one of many, many congregations across this country and really internationally who are joining forces with NCJW, the National Council of Jewish Women, in marking this Shabbat as Repro Shabbat, um, a weekend in which we celebrate and honor and focus our energies and our, our work on the ongoing struggle to secure reproductive rights, reproductive health, and reproductive justice. And we do it in this context around a Jewish framing to say loud and clear that reproductive freedom is a Jewish value. And so tomorrow... We're going to have a little bit of Torah learning around that topic and then uh, a drash delivered by our adult bat mitzvah, Kirin Shamash, uh, on that topic as well. But to get us started in thinking about the importance and relevance of that work, we're going to have Hannah Jensen, our rabbinic intern, close our service with a bracha sofit, a closing blessing on the theme of Repro Shabbat. I want to invite you all to rise as we take in this blessing. Eloheinu, Elohei Avotenu, Vimotenu, our God and God of our ancestors, what a blessing to find ourselves again at Shabbat, one that we needed so badly this week. Thank you for helping us arrive safely here. Thank you for being the one to ufros aleinu sukachlamecha to spread over us the shelter of your peace. Thank you for this continued opportunity to align ourselves with the cosmic principle of Mishpat. Thank you for this Shabbat to commit and recommit ourselves to the fight for reproductive justice, to affirm and reaffirm that we are all created in the image of God and endowed with the rights to dignity and autonomy, to read and reread our Parsha this week, Mishpatim, a Parsha full of laws that reminds us of the preeminent rights of the pregnant person and also continues to remind us of what it looks like to create a system with just laws. Let it be the case that the laws in our land cause us to shama v'tismach tzion v'tagelna benot Yehuda, that when those laws are stated, that all of Zion hears them and rejoices, that the cities, that the cities celebrate. 
Help us to create a society committed to equity, justice, and human rights for all. God, help us to continue the fight for a society here and now rooted in love and justice and bodily autonomy for every single person. Help us to work tirelessly for the world as we imagine how it could be. May we all know and live in our lifetimes in a world where every person is seen with the dignity and autonomy inherent in them simply by being created in the divine image. A world full of equity, justice, and human rights for all. Elna Rafana La, help us God, heal us all. For you are the source of light, and in your light, we too are bathed in light. Shabbat shalom. Amen. Um, we are marking uh, this week, along with uh, communities across the country, um, and led by the Jewish, uh, uh, the National Council for Jewish Women, we're, um, we're marking um, what's becoming a tradition, what they're calling Repro Shabbat. Uh, reproductive rights Shabbat, um, a, a, a Shabbat where we take the time to uh, stand for and with um, the call for um, re repro autonomy around um, uh, reproductive uh, choices in this country. The, um, we thought, because of that, that maybe uh, we would dedicate the sermon to those issues today. I, I spoke on issues of abortion in Jewish law around the time of the Dobbs decision. Um, but it, it turns out I worked with uh, Kieran on, um, on her uh, drasha, and uh, it turns out that Kieran's touching on some of these issues. And, um, and so we're gonna leave it to her. It's also meaningful for us to have a woman's voice, a doctor's voice, um, speaking to some of these issues. So, um, so the sermon <laughs> we're turning over to Kieran today. Um, but I do just want to say just a note um, before we begin uh, on why it is that this Shabbat, why is this Shabbat chosen as the Shabbat to, to contemplate, to reflect on, to think about um, these issues in our country. And the reason is that this week's Torah reading, Parshat Mishpatim, contains in it not um, a direct reference to uh, uh, abortion or abortion law, um, but the first um, snippets of material that will become directly relevant to those laws as they get worked out through Jewish tradition. So I just want to highlight what those verses are so you know why this is the Shabbat that was chosen and, you know, and, and also so that you're aware of where this conversation starts in our tradition. And it starts at, uh, by the marking of this book on page 461, if you want to look. And it's... Um, it's one in a series of mishpatim. Mishpatim are laws, um, and that this, this week's Torah reading is called mishpatim, a series of laws. And one of those laws um, in chapter 21, verse 22, um, is as follows. V'chi natsu anashim, when men fight, v'nagfu isha hara, and one of them pushes or knocks into a pregnant woman, v'yatsu yeladeha and a miscarriage results. son, but there's no other damage that ensues, the woman is not injured. Then the one responsible shall be fined according as the woman's husband may extract from him. Okay, so there's a fine involved and it's paid to the 
to the husband, to the, uh, to the woman's husband. Ve'im ason but if there is some other damage, in other words, if the woman uh, is, who was knocked into is herself hurt, v'natata nefesh tachat nefesh. If she dies, God forbid, then, um, the, then it would be life for life. The death penalty would be called for. And then some, some very classic phrasing. Um, and if other damage ensues, ayin tachat ayin, shein tachat shein, the penalty shall be eye for eye, tooth for tooth, yad tachat yad, regel tachat regel. Uh, uh, a hand for a hand and a foot for a foot. Okay, so that's the case. And it, uh, it's not a case of, of abortion, but it is... Um, maybe you can hear directly relevant for a couple of reasons. One is that, um, perhaps you noticed, the fetus in this, in this miscarriage is not treated as a lost life, but as a piece of property, right? with, a, with a financial, a monetary value that needs to be paid back. So that's, that's quite a different start to thinking about the issue altogether. And we know that especially because it's put in direct contracts to the, to the woman's life, which is treated as a full life. And that begins a conversation that when it's picked up by the, by the Mishnah, the great rabbinic um, code uh, of the, the second century, um, when abortion uh, actually is, is, is finally named and discussed, um, the first formulation there um, makes clear that chayeha kadma lechayav, her life takes precedence over the fetus's life. Okay. So that's just the beginning of the conversation and the reason why this is the week where, um, wherein we, we reflect on and we, we, um, we, we think about these issues. Now, you may not like the formulation you just heard. Right? You may be thinking, I don't think of a fetus as property. Whatever my opinion on the issue of abortion, that doesn't sound right to me. And did you notice that the property is the property not of the woman but of her husband? Right? So, we, I say this just to say that we, we invoke our tradition's conversation around these issues not to find some validation or verification of what we already believe. Not so that we can say our political opinions, they're already here in this book. That's not the point of invoking our tradition. In fact, as the long discussion around these issues continues throughout the tradition, some opinions are much more restrictive on the question of abortion, only allowing it in cases of great danger. And some opinions are much more permissive, allowing it in cases of mental anguish or even financial strain. But that's just the point. The point is that this is a tradition that has a diversity of opinions and conclusions on this very complicated issue. That is the point. We are uh, not uh, a tradition um, that, um, that, that has a, a Supreme Court anymore. Right? We, we, have, we are a tradition that allows for a robust and, and, and sometimes fierce debate around these great questions of, of family, of ethics, of, of life. And so we call for reproductive freedom. And so we call for choice. We call for choice because this is a tradition that, that demands of us that we reflect, that we inevitably choose between a myriad of, of difficult um, outcomes. So um, this uh, Shabbat, um, we stand for choice.
We stand for choice in a tradition that acknowledges complexity, in a tradition that demands that we, choice and that, that we choose. And in fact, the word for our laws, mishpatim, is related to the word for judgment, because all of these laws, the beginning of the of the of the of the of the of the, of the, the abortion conversation in our tradition, but all the laws that we're going to read today demand of us that we reflect, that we think, that we judge, that we reckon, that we grapple through these complicated issues. That's our tradition. It's a tradition that acknowledges complication. It's a tradition that acknowledges diversity of opinion, and therefore it is a tradition that demands that there be space for choice. Okay, so we begin um, our reading today on um, page uh, 456. Seven, starting with chapter 12. Just stop here. I mean, we're already, this is already so good. We're already so impressed. Um, but, uh, but we're not going to stop here. I had the privilege of um, studying with Kieran um, as she moved through this um, reading and, and studied and, and analyzed it and did really, really good work, really deep, deep work. Um, and so um, because of that depth of analysis and because um, Kieran is touching on some of the themes that I, 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 I mentioned earlier, um, we're very, uh, very pleased to step aside and, uh, and let Kieran be our, our, our sermonizer, our darshanit for today. Shabbat Shalom. <laughs> I know what you must be thinking. That woman is at least 18 and far too old to be a bat mitzvah. Allow me to explain. First, I want to be clear that this speech is a love letter to my family and friends, but mostly to you, my found family, my Jewish community. And this love letter starts with a love story. In the fall of 2001, I fell in love with a young Jewish man named David. We fell in love through conversations, long and full of honest back and forth, about the things we felt were most important at the time. What David brought to me was a willingness to get at the heart of the thing, to open up discussion rather than shut it down, wrap it up in a tiny box, and tuck it away. Religion was a conversation topic early in our relationship. I spoke of my decision around age 12 or 13 to leave the Catholic Church and become a vegetarian feminist, basically a future ECAR member. <laughs> I, had, I had so many unanswered questions about God, sex, faith, my future as a woman in this society, and there wasn't room for my questions, my blossoming body within the confines of the stunning stained glass windows. So I moved on to acting, writing, literature, travel, reproductive rights, advocacy, and a career in healthcare. In these conversations, David often spoke of his identity as a Jew, of the richness his cultural and religious experiences brought to his life. He was honest about his experience with, experiences with anti-Semitism and his own struggle with his level of observance and his views on God. As our relationship deepened, it became clear that religion would be much more than a harmless topic of date-night conversation. We would struggle with each other and with our families. Religion and religious identity would become a center of gravity in our lives about which we pushed and pulled. Ultimately, I recognized that being Jewish was essential to accentuating parts of myself I wanted to cultivate. Judaism gave me a way to organize my family and home with this man I loved so profoundly. 
It gave me a way to pray that felt uniquely mine. It gave me a community of thinkers, friends, and endless debate partners. I learned there was space for me just as I was. It was not that I found an echo chamber of my own views. Quite the contrary, I found plenty of people willing to openly, if lovingly, disagree with me. Just ask my husband, who has turned this into an art form, or maybe a sport. <laughs> but I knew in my heart I was home, and now I have the chance to display my love and gratitude to you through my Devar Torah. So here goes. This week's Torah portion, known as Parshat Mishpatim, is a shift from what was, until this point, a traditional narrative form and my personal literary preference. The preceding Parsha, in fact, culminates with this dramatic scene at Sinai with the handing down of the Ten Commandments. There's thunder and lightning and a smoking mountain. It's the stuff of epic stories. In stark contrast, this portion begins with a long list of intricate laws or mishpatim governing early Israelite society, from criminal and civil law to humanitarian and religious law. With time and a little caffeine, I fell in love with this ancient, elegant attempt to build a safer and more humane society where the most vulnerable had at least some protections afforded them under the law. It's as though God descends from on high to meet us humans where we live, in all our imperfection, with a list of guidelines directing us away from chaos and toward a more just society where vulnerable populations, women, strangers, enslaved persons, have some protection from abuse. In doing so, this portion highlights our humanity, naming our deepest fears, needs, and desires. But as with any good love story, this one had its rocky moments, and I'm grateful to have the space and permission to explore those with you today. These laws aren't perfect, but they are an incredible attempt to create order and chaos so that more of us might thrive. And eventually, I learned there was a sort of harmony in this struggle to understand and interpret this Torah portion, especially the parts that made me uncomfortable. Throughout this portion, women are frequently objectified and spoken of almost exclusively as property of their fathers or husbands. In fact, the only time a woman is specifically mentioned on her own and unattached to a male figure is Exodus 22:17, Mechashefa lo thou shalt not tolerate a sorceress. Or, in some translations, thou shalt not tolerate a sorceress to live. You may have heard this commandment before. It's been used throughout history to justify murdering women accused of witchcraft, as in the Salem witch trials. While the law applies to both men and women who practice witchcraft, according to the French medieval commentator Rashi, the feminine form of sorceress is used because it is women who mostly practice witchcraft. Rashi's grandson, Rashbam, goes even further in his commentary, Lo he writes, referencing the imperative thou shalt, is meant to tell the authorities not to despair of bringing these culprits to justice. They should be hunted down until found. The medieval Jewish philosopher, the Ramban, addresses the same grammatical choice by noting that the Torah utilizes motumat, or he shall be put to death, with regard to other crimes where someone receives the death penalty. But in this case, he says, the Torah warns us in stricter manner, by means of a negative commandment, thou shalt not. The reason for this is that the sorceress is defiled of name and full of tumult. This language is clearly directed at female practitioners. Anyone who has felt the sting of misogyny understands this disproportionate intensity. She is defiled and full of tumult. 
Why does this justify the stricter manner of the negative commandment and the harshest of punishments? One definition of defiled is to have one's body physically violated, as many women's bodies surely were then and are now. I can think of multiple reasons why they might be full of tumult. Wouldn't these women deserve some understanding, compassion even, for whatever brought them to the state? Maybe this is why they felt the need to congregate in secret. Were they looking for alternative ways to empower themselves in a society that wouldn't offer them the same protections as others? I wondered what I would have thought as a 12-year-old girl reading this, but I'm no longer a child. <laughs> I am a grown woman who has seen parts of the world I couldn't have imagined at 12. In my younger years, when I worked in reproductive justice and pro-choice advocacy, I often found myself face-to-face -face with angry men and a few women who called me names like baby killer or tried to intimidate people who needed crucial health information from me at health fairs. That a woman in a pink t-shirt owning her sexuality and her reproductive rights could inspire so much vitriol was infuriating and scary. And this lack of tolerance of a woman in charge of her body should be scary, should be troubling. These examples pale in comparison to the very real physical threats and assaults that women and members of vulnerable populations face on a daily basis in this country. My journey to reproductive advocacy was par partially the result of hard experiences that I had, but all, mostly because of the stories of people I, I encountered along the way that showed me how the most vulnerable and marginalized had little protection from abuse without this work to enforce existing laws or pass better ones. In an interview with Anita Hill, the legal writer Dahlia Lithwick asks whether it's appropriate for women to turn away from the law, given the harm it has caused so many. Ms. Hill was resolute in responding that the law is necessary because without it, we have chaos. She said, we will lose with chaos. We will always lose. When the laws in this parsha are at their best, they protect the most vulnerable, but it isn't a perfect system. I thought about the sorceresses referenced in the Torah passage I quoted earlier. I thought about how this was the only law where women stand alone, unattached to a male figure, and yet this ultimately left them alone outside the protection of any law. The 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade was a few weeks ago. Last summer, it was effectively overturned with the Dobbs Supreme Court decision. Millions of women immediately lost access to life-saving reproductive health care as state laws banning or near-banning abortion went into effect. Overnight, they found themselves standing outside the protection of the law. As I wrote, I felt angry that such, and sad that hard-won pr protections for women and people who are able to become pregnant were being stripped away. Some of this Torah portion echoed so much of what enrages me about current laws that I had trouble figuring out what I was supposed to speak about, what this gift of the Torah actually meant to me. We are not sorceresses to be shunned. We are humans to be cherished. But this is, as I promised in the beginning, a love letter at its core. I focused in again wondering what this ancient legal code could do to help me better understand my struggle with my own country and society. In Exodus chapter 21, verse 10, we read, If he marries another, he shall not withhold from this one her food, her clothing, or her conjugal rights. 
The word onata here specifically refers to a woman's right to physical intimacy and sexual satisfaction in her marriage. If she does not receive this, she is to go free as outlined in the subsequent verse. Wow. I don't remember reading this as a 12-year-old in Bible study. <laughs> that the Torah would explicitly reference a woman's sexuality in his code of law blew my mind. And the sages do not ignore this passage. In fact, they explore it even further, underscoring the reality that women have desire that is not to be ignored. The Mishnah goes so far as to outline a sex schedule where men are required to attend to their wives' needs at regular intervals based on their line of work. Men who do not leave the home for work are required to do it every day, for example. Quite a concept in the age of telecommuting. <laughs> so, so right here in this thousands-year-old text, not to mention the many rabbinic commentaries that followed, we have a seed of hope, an overt reference to women's sexuality and sexual desire. This Parsha moved me with its willingness to name the thing, to get at the heart of the issue. So often in our national discourse on women's bodies, we focus on various embryonic states and situational contexts and refuse to discuss that there is a human at the center of it with sexual desire and a right, for, a right to comprehensive reproductive health care, including the right to a safe and timely abortion. If we cannot talk about the thing we are making hugely influential judicial decisions and laws about, how can we expect to make progress as a community? Reading these passages, I see myself reflected in my full independent humanity, but it is as a sorceress and one who must not be tolerated. But I also see myself reflected in my full humanity, a core component of which is my desire for pleasure, my onata, and it is named for me and not hidden away under a bedskirt of shame. Of course, this onata appears in a restrictive, heteronormative, confined to marriage depiction of only what a husband owes his wife, but there it is, nonetheless, in plain ancient Hebrew. And I remember what Anita Hill said about the law, and I see we cannot turn away from it, that we must face it and struggle within it until we all stand in until we all stand within the light provided by legal protections. I think about my own independent choices at age 12, my discovery that I had agency in such decisions. Had I been born Jewish, perhaps I would have had a bat mitzvah that year. Would I have wanted to become a daughter of the commandments? I hope so. Would I have struggled against the pressure, struggled with this text? Definitely. I like to think that my own grappling 30 years later to understand my world through the lens of my bat mitzvah portion, Torah portion echoes back to that young girl. I want this struggle and the serenity I feel all at once to speak to the 12-year-old girls who will wrestle in their own ways with this portion and what it can teach us. I find some solace in this work, this struggle to interpret a holy and imperfect book a reflection of our holy and imperfect human selves. And today, I am home in my Jewish community, here struggling in more ways than one in front of all of you. Thank you for making space at your table for me when I was a stranger to you. And I mean that with all the love in my big Jewish heart. Shabbat Shalom.
Um, Kieran, I want, I, I want to thank you. I want to thank you. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure learning with you, and I want to thank you for your Torah this morning. Um, someone asked me earlier today, why do we call it an adult bat mitzvah? Isn't it just a bat mitzvah? Why do we have to qualify? <laughs>